Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wrenching Reboot Podcast, episode 45. Welcome to 2022. I hope you guys had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. For this week's episode, we go back to December when CK was at the 8th National Grazing Land Coalition Conference in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, so she won't be joining us for this one. This week's guest is someone that's still at the beginning of their journey of learning to participate with nature. Today, we're going to talk about disrupted supply chains due to both weather and covid and how being aware of the history of indigenous management, including fire, is contributing to how we graze today. Please welcome to the show, Ben Glasson from Glasson Farms. Hey, Ben. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Well, it's it's good to meet you. Uh, we've been talking, exchanging a few emails back and forth here and there. Um, it's good to meet you. Welcome to the show. Well, sure. Thank you for having me. I've definitely really, really enjoyed ever since you guys launched. Um, listening through podcasts and, and audio format is, is my element because I can participate, I can become educated all while I got my hands full farming. That's a lot of the same reasons why I like podcasts. I've got um, like, I have an open ear um, headset. It's like a bone conduction headset that I wear a lot at work and I'll turn a podcast on and you know, just put my phone in my pocket and not have to worry about it because I'm jumping in and out of the gator. I'm, you know, working cows on foot, doing that kind of thing. So I, I a lot of times I'll run out of battery during the day. <laughs> so, yeah. so tell me a little bit about yourself. Where, uh, where are you at? Well, I'm in uh, Nanaimo, which is on Vancouver Island. So this is the traditional territories of the Nanaimo people which is like the Coast Salish people. So the whole Pacific Northwest, the traditional people here were the Denimuk First Nations, part of the Coast Salish area. So I'm on this big rock, which is very unique context because, you know, the, the rock has about, you know, 800,000 people on it, half of which are in Victoria, the province's capital. And so Victoria is kind of across the Straits of Georgia from Seattle. And where I'm at in Nanaimo is across from uh, the city of Vancouver on the mainland. Okay. They, uh, and don't I, I remember within the last month, haven't you guys had some really rough weather up there and, uh, caused some infrastructure problems? Absolutely. On November 14th and 15th, we had a significant rain event. I mean, considering we're in the rain capital, we had a significant rain event, which, uh, the Fraser Valley, which is the breadbasket of the city of Vancouver on the mainland, it was completely flooded out. And, don't quote me on these numbers, but we lost 280,000 birds in, in confinement barns. We lost, um, I think it was 1,200 uh, pigs. Uh, I think it was uh, about 550 cattle, mostly dairy animals. And then um, I think it was uh, 120 beehives were lost. And so it was a significant rain event. 
um, my one of my leases, the the river does overflow and we get what we call a pop-up lake. We'll go canoeing on it sometimes. Right. Nothing more Canadian than canoeing. And so uh, we, but this year it was deep. It was like completely flooded the entire field and, um, and, and yeah, it was covering the fence post for sure. Now I'm working up on the top of the field, keeping my animals out of that, knowing that that's a seasonal flood zone. But boy, was it a significant event. A lot of people lost a lot. So I'm grateful that I was prepared. I know from seeing on social media, that there are several places like, uh, what is it? Coca-Cola Highway? Correct. That's it's, how we get. Yeah. That's how we get cut from off, right? the coast to Kamloops, which is like rural territory. And, um, and so that's like, we're not going home to my wife's family in Kamloops for Christmas um, because those are all cut off and and you know that's the thing is like for coming into Christmas like Christmas turkeys or hams well the whole Fraser Valley is shut down so we're, we've lost so much of that opportunity and then everyone eats Alberta beef but the highway to the Alberta beef is cut off so our supply chains have been very disrupted and so not only did we have the reminder with COVID about supply chain scares but and at the beginning of COVID when when panic buying made the shelves go empty. But now with these floods, we've seen it happen again. Just a reminder that there's many ways that this can happen, that these supply chains can cut, be cut off. And here on Vancouver Island, you know, we're susceptible to that ferry system. Right. So all of our food comes across on a barge. And that's what we say about this part of the world is uh, 70 years ago, before World War II, uh, 95% of the food on Vancouver Island was grown on Vancouver Island. We were a net exporter. Before irrigation, Vancouver Island was a hub for apple production. Well, today, 95% of our food is imported. Only 5% of production happens here on Vancouver Island. Anybody grow apples around there? They do in small, small batches, mostly for things like cidery. I met a young couple at a Christmas party over the weekend, and, um, and they're starting a cidery. Um, with regenerative practices. And so uh, I'm eager to talk more about uh, livestock on their farm. Okay. So now that we know where you're at, let's, uh, let's learn a little bit about Ben. Where'd you come from and, and how'd you, what, what, are, what were kind of the basic steps to get to where you are? For sure. Uh, well, when I was a child, um, we just talked, we mentioned uh, how I just listened to CK's story. And so she had a, a rough upbringing. And so my father worked for Child Protective Services, CPS, um, in Wenatchee, Washington. I was born in Seattle, six months old, moved to Wenatchee, Washington, which is the Apple capital of the world to this day, um, on the Columbia River there. And um, my dad was kind of a, a whistleblower. So, you know, he was advocating for kids like CK, um, even when the system wasn't allowing the protection to happen. And so that made me move around a lot. So we started in Wenatchee, Washington. And as a little boy, we would walk around the lake and we would pick up the apples and I'd feed them across the fence or we'd take that, that ditch grass and feed it across the fence to the overgrazed paddock where the cows or the horses were struggling to find a bite. And uh, so from very, very young, I was getting exposed to livestock. And then to, just after my second birthday, a coworker of my dad's takes him to the Ellensburg Rodeo. And I'm two years old, hyperactive kid. We were up on the balcony 
Well, I was at the railing of the balcony and I was dead quiet observing this rodeo. And from that day on, nothing but rodeo cowboys ranching. That was all I talked about as a child. <laughs> uh, and so what's fun is that my childhood playset was these wooden collapsible fences that you could fold up or you could string them out and put them out for the, to play for the day. Okay. So I've been playing with mobile temporary fencing since I was a toddler. <laughs> and now I play with it with, you know, poly braid electric wire and premier one electric nets. So uh, that's where I like to claim my my start of pasture pasture management and intensively managed grazing started as a child. So we moved to Canada when I was about five years old because of some stuff going on with my dad's work. Um, so that was kind of the ad adversity in my life that my dad had to leave a position um, and uh, and we kind of escaped to Canada because my dad was being wrongfully accused um, when he was trying to protect families. So we moved to uh, Canada and we lived in um, in the mainland, kind of between the city and that Fraser Valley area. And uh, I did a lot of horseback riding um, between the ages of five and about 10 years old, 12 years old. And then um, we moved over here to Vancouver Island. Uh, there's not much rural life in Nanaimo specifically. So I was more into cycling, uh, which is what my dad's sport was. Um, but my sister was given up for adoption. Uh, my mom did it the hard way. She had my sister when she was in her teens and had me in her 40s. So when I was 13 years old, we hired a private investigator who found my sister who was living in Houston, Texas. Okay. And so at 14 years old, um, we went down to visit my sister and we went to the Houston stock show and rodeo. And so I came home old enough to uh, research on the internet, find a practice pen, buy all my bull riding gear off eBay. And so I had a very short lived bull riding career, uh, riding steers and junior rodeos and spent my 15th birthday in the hospital having been stepped on and lost my spleen. So that ended my livestock rodeo career however i still say that i lived out my my traveling rodeo cowboy dream because um after high school i became a professional mountain bike rider riding slope style so you know traveling those long hours in the sedan slope style slope style so it's the big tricks so usually it's at a, a, a ski hill and they build a course right on that main front slope and it's uh you know it's a combination of big drops big jumps and it's a scored contest okay um so, you know, just like rough stock, I'm, I'm traveling long distances for a 30 second run to get scored by the judges and put on a show for a bunch of, uh, you know, low, high a bunch risk of people that rewards. just want to see you crash. Exactly. You got it. So I did that for a number of years, but then, um, started getting injured. So broke my wrist, had a number of surgeries for that. And that encouraged me to go back to school while I was recovering. So I did a one year program mountain biking as a tourism generator. And then I had my first business plan in hand. I was like, all right, I'm ready to make a mountain bike guiding business. Like, well, you probably want more skills. So they sent me to the main campus um, in North Vancouver, uh, live in the big city. And uh, I did a diploma in outdoor rec and adventure tourism. And then I finished out another two years to have a degree in tourism management. Now I continued getting more and more injuries. And so uh, 
so by the time I was in my last term, I realized I had to uh, move away from my goals of being in the mountain bike industry, that my body was too beat up from that. So I transferred my interest back to agriculture, first finding aquaponics, which was super interesting to me. Um, but aquaponics is super high investment. So of course, aquaponics is land-based fish farming, where you run the wastewater from the fish into a greenhouse. The greenhouse takes up the wastewater, which is nutrition for the plants. And then it cleans the water that can go back to the fish, a closed loop system. Right. Um, so, you know, already thinking about biodiversity ecosystem management. Well, that's really high investment, uh, infrastructure, you know, looking at a quarter million dollar pilot plant and over a million dollar in industrial facility. So I worked trying to find investment dollars for that, but kind of got discouraged. So I was looking at different things. Uh, and on YouTube, I found first Justin Rhodes talking about pasture poultry, who led me to Joel Salatin, who led me to Wendell Berry, who then took me to Sir Albert Howard, and then backwards through Alan Savory, Alan Nation, uh, and Greg Judy. So I really got my education in regenerative agriculture through podcasts and audiobooks. Uh, so we had the opportunity to move back to Vancouver Island. My mom has Alzheimer's, so uh, it was time to get back here. So I, I went from a tourism position wearing a suit downtown in Vancouver um, to then uh, a labor position over here, uh, power washing electric motors um, for like, you know, all the lumber plants around here. And I could listen to podcasts on audiobooks. So I listened to, you know, in six months, I listened to my Stitcher podcast app showed uh, six months, 600 hours of content just on podcasts, much less any of the audiobooks I was consuming at the same time. So when I was working in the city there in Vancouver and I wanted to start my first pilot project, I was like, well, could I do pasture poultry in, here in, in the city? And we weren't allowed uh, backyard chickens in that neighborhood. So I found the alternative being quail. So I, I started with the four principles for young farmer success that I still use to this day. In fact, that I'm taking not only to farming, but also to building abattoirs or slaughter plants. So first of all is detach the land ownership from the farming. Second is mobile infrastructure. Third is modular infrastructure. And fourth is direct marketing. So when I'm still living in the city, living in a basement suite, I, I asked my lease owner, hey, can I raise quail in our backyard? And he's like, no, I don't know about that. Young Asian guy, his first house, he was like, oh, I don't want to, to have a, you know, the wildlife coming in and I don't, I don't want to upset the neighbors. Neighbors, light bulb. I made a pamphlet up and I go to all the neighbors and I ask, hey, can I put quail in your backyard? And if not in your backyard, would you mind if it was in your neighbor's backyard? And everyone was totally fine with it. Maybe not their yard, but they wouldn't mind. So I approached all the neighbors and, you know, if they didn't want it in their backyard, they were happy to have the quail in their neighbor's backyard. So I started with one leased backyard um, and then the second piece is mobile infrastructure. So I built these little quail tractors to fit in the back of my wife's Nissan Leaf electric car. Well, I measured the three feet at the top of the opening, not the bottom of the opening. So they didn't fit in the electric car. So I literally walked them down the road to put them in these backyards, as well as I'd get my suit on every morning. I'd walk down the street and I'd move these quail tractors on my way to the SkyTrain, hop on the SkyTrain into the city, and then I'd stop and feed them again on the way back and give them another move. That's awesome. 
and that's, so that, it could be one of the coolest things I've heard on this podcast <laughs> is you walk down the street in your suit and tie to move your quail tractors in suburban backyards on your way to get a train to go downtown to your job. You got it. And so modular infrastructure, I started with one backyard. I was up to five backyards by the end of the year. I was doing batches about two dozen birds at a time, brooding them in my laundry room in a Tupperware bin. And so I raised 200 birds over the year, um, mostly trying to get a, a egg laying flock. But then um, any of the meat birds, because they weren't processed in an inspected facility, I gifted them to the landowners. And that was kind of my lease payment. Um, and so every, 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 member of each family at least got one quail dinner and then direct marketing so there was a car free day and i got a little market booth at this car free day and i wasn't allowed to sell meat because i didn't have my health inspected whatever so i sold or so i sold memberships to the quail club which was a punch card that you paid ten dollars for which got you your first set of eggs for free so in a regular egg carton i would put three dozen quail eggs and on that car free day i developed 10 customers who then proceeded who i then delivered their first eggs for free and they proceeded to buy every dozen eggs that i could produce how much you get for a dozen quail eggs it was three dozen quail eggs in a regular egg carton for 10 bucks canadian okay and Meanwhile, you can walk into the superstore and you can buy a dozen and a half for two bucks, I think, that are out of, you know, an industrial facility in Alberta. You can get male eggs in the store in Canada? Yeah, there's enough of an ethnic population here. A lot of Asians that love the quail eggs. Huh, interesting. Wouldn't have thought that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the thing is, like, you know, uh, Alan Nation's dad says you can only be so weird. You can be a Buddhist or you can be a nudist but you can't be both. That's too weird. <laughs> and so as soon as I moved over here to Vancouver Island, I knew I wanted to focus on the big five, chicken, turkey, lamb, pork, beef, and even lamb, you know, 50% of North Americans haven't even tried lamb and only 5% consider it part of their regular diet. But for the land services and especially getting me started with ruminants, that's where I've started with ruminants. So in 2019, I moved here in June on June 1st, we got into our new home bought our smallest, tiniest little house we could in, in town. And then I lease all my farmland five minutes um, because where we are on Vancouver Island, we're squeezed between the ocean, the Georgia Strait and the mountains because it's very mountain rocky area. So right. all of our, we're squeezed between the, the coast and the mountains. So within five minutes, I can drive from my house over to the, the farmland. So I started with a five acre lease um, and in 2019, did two batches of 250 broilers. In 2020, I did four batches of 300 broilers, and I did 80 turkeys, and I did my first six pigs. And then in 2021, here, uh, the first three months of the year, January, February, March, I sold 12 pigs. And just based on the demand for those 12 pigs, I need to raise 60 pigs just to keep up with current demand, much less. So you'd yeah. have to do 60 pigs based on demand. Yeah. So based on my current demand, I would have to do 60 pigs just to keep up. So this past year I did, uh, 24 pigs, 1200 broilers, 300 turkeys. And, uh, I started my flock of sheep last year. I bought six good ewes from a old lady who, uh, 
you know, she'd have had a closed flock for 30 years. Uh, no ivermectin, barely fed. Island. Yeah, barely fed any grain, you know, locally adapted. So a great start with six ewes. And, a, and then I bought a ram from a friend as well as a ram came with the flock. So I put the ram from my friend in. And then this year I'm putting the ram in um, that came with the flock to get that good genetics back in. And, uh, and so I bought four more replacement ewes. So I've got, uh, I got 14 ewes that I'm breeding this year. So again, for another May lambing. So basically what I'm trying to do is now apply those principles to a diversified livestock business on lease land. So I have uh, multiple leases now. I have relationships with about five families, but I have my two primary leases. The original five acres that I started on and then a 50 acre farm that has a bunch going on. So the Nanaimo Food Share is a nonprofit that teaches uh, youth job skills through farming, mostly market gardening. And so on the land that they're not market gardening, the doctor who owns the property, he sees the benefit of regenerative agriculture and is allowing me to graze everything else and have my pigs in the forest. So I've got five acres in the top field, 10 acres in the bottom field, that one that we spoke about being flooded. And then I got four acres in the woods for the pigs. Very cool. And I, you know, it's worth it to mention, you know, like you're talking like four acres here and a few acres here. It doesn't sound like a lot to me, but I'm also a guy that needs, you know, 20, 22 acres to keep a cow for a year. <laughs> so, and I, I guess it bears to be said that, you know, these small ruminants, are a lot more space efficient. You can raise an awful lot of pigs on five acres. You know, you could raise a lot of chickens on, you know, thousands and thousands of chickens on five acres, right? You got it. And so here, you know, I think they say about two acres per cow because, you know, we're in a grassy place where it snows for a week. The rest of the time, we got green grass on the ground. Um, Jaime Alessandro, I was in a conference with him and was asking about this area and he's visited here on a, a vacation. And he said, the only time you probably need to feed hay is in February when maybe there's been some snow on the ground and it's melted and that grass is on the ground molding away. And then you need to throw some hay out there for them. But other than that, you know, should be able to get away with grazing green grass all year long. So my model is basically I'm working. It's great to have this interview with you now because I'm still at the beginning of my journey, the first few chapters. And I'm trying to take this blueprint and lay it out over the next few years. So by 2025, my goal is to have a full-time income of about $75,000 off $200,000 to $250,000 of revenue. And I'm going to do that working below the poultry quota system so you can get a direct vendor permit okay. for 2,000 broiler chickens or 300 turkeys. You got to explain the, the poultry quota system. You got to Correct. explain that because I, I've never heard of that. Okay, so the poultry marketing board for the industrial poultry industry, they have the, this quota system. And so all contract growers for the Lilydale, the Tyson, um, you know, we have Island Farmhouse is the, the Vancouver Island version of that. Uh, they have quota systems where you have to buy poundage in order to raise those birds. So for the industrial guys, they own a quota that was either grandfathered to them, they bought it off someone, farmer who died, or they've gotten into some new entrance program. Um, and so that's how the poultry industry is regulated in Canada. Okay. 
I don't play with that system because I'm working below that because that that's the industrial system. You're required to have an industrial barn, basically be on a contract. You have to own the property to put the industrial barn on all these things that don't apply to what I'm doing. Is it because of a size thing or are you just operating in a gray area? Basically it's all of these safeties that ensure the industrial poultry industry of large scale confinement and agriculture and vertically integrated companies. It's kind of the checks and balances around that industry. But what I'm doing direct marketing and raising birds outside does not fit any of those regulations. (laughs) And so that's why, yeah. So that's why they have this permit for up to 2000 broilers per property and up to 300 turkeys per property. So you know what? I am happy with working with that. And I will raise 2000 broilers. I'll raise 300 turkeys. And then I'll raise those 60 pigs we talked about me needing for my market right now. And then if I market a dozen lambs a year and direct market six head of beef, that would give me my full-time income. And that doesn't seem like a lot of animals to someone who knows a lot of animals. But if you're direct marketing at those all at top dollar, that it works out, it pencils out. And the other thing about that is that I can do that on about 15 acres here, you know, 15, 20 acres that I can piece together with a couple of these little properties. Um, And then the other thing about it is that my market currently, like I can't keep up with the farmers. I do one farmer's market, which is the Wednesday farmer's market. I do four restaurants that I give them maybe, you know, uh, like 15, 20% of their chicken, maybe 20% of their pork right now. So I have a lot of room to fill there. And then I work with one butcher shop who, you know, if I have, if I raised 1200 broilers last year, I got them a hundred birds or something like that uh, throughout the whole year, just so they could have fresh birds on the counter. And my email list is about 150 people. So I cannot keep up with my current demand, much less if I was to grow demand, then I could produce significantly more. So when my goal is to produce those 1200 broilers, 300 turkeys, a dozen lambs, six beef and 60 pigs a year, you know, getting to that level would just fill the customers that I have today after two years, three years of farming here on Vancouver Island. Now there is certainly opportunities to grow the business more as I grow demand. And that's something I will probably do in order to maybe retire my wife out of the work she does, which is youth work, um, uh, supporting kids like Casey or CK when she was growing up, like, so my wife would like to transition out of that and maybe work on the farm with those types of kids. So I will certainly grow the business bigger, but I don't need to. And the other thing is we hear a lot about the traditional size of tribes being about 150 people that humans are engineered to only have strong relationships with about 150 people. So this blueprint that I'm laying out is to build a farm to the scale of one family can produce enough food for 150 people. And then I'm not trying to 10 X my company. I'm trying to 10 X how many farmers I have in this community. So I want to teach other farmers how to create this model and build the model to feed another 150 people. 
Right. And you know, that's that's kind of one of the things that's difficult sometimes about being in regenerative agriculture is there's there's no corporate interests haven't found a way in yet to and and stay core to the mission of regenerative agriculture. And just like you're saying, you know, if we're we're regenerative, we want to regenerate communities. And it's not about growing your company as big and as fast as it can. It's about finding the logical size unit and just scaling that to a bunch of different places. You know, we don't. Yeah. The yeah. scale is in the amount of people that we can get to do this is not in the company size. Um, so, you know, I just want to get some chings in here. So I have not been to ranching for profits yet, but I do want to get to ranching for profits pretty soon. Cause I think that that mission statement is absolutely, um, we need to build profits. We need to build a profitable business so that we have those profits to do more good. And so, you know, the ranching for profits model or, or any other model where we're creating this kind of freestanding unit where a family can produce enough food for their community. And then we can replicate that by teaching others how to do it. You know, I think that's the future of food because we're decentralizing the food system. We're creating a craft food system. Uh, this is the craft meat industry. And just the way, you know, Temple Grandin said this, you know, Budweiser isn't going anywhere, but craft breweries have made a significant dent and made a huge impact on the economy of the brewing industry. Same as what we're going to do with craft meat as the regenerative movement grows. Craft meat is going to get huge, but Tyson Cargill and JBS aren't going anywhere. Right. And it, I've had that conversation with several people over the last couple of weeks. You know, the, the big meat packers, whether we're talking about beef, chicken, pork, they're not going anywhere. Like they are here to stay. The KFO model is here to stay. Like we will be old men and there will probably still be feedlots, chicken barns and hog houses around no matter how disgusting we think they are. I think though, as time goes forward, the people that are invested in those systems and in those methods of production and the consumers of that product, I don't think they're getting any new consumers. And I think it's just, you know, those industries will naturally go away when their customers go away. And I think that over time, their customers are just going to age out and not get replaced. And the new generation of customers is going to want the craft meat. And they're going to want to reconnect with the story of their food, even if it's not meat, even if it's vegetables. So yeah, we're, we've got to live with Tyson and Cargill for a while yet in Smithfield. But the good news is we're, we're not even playing the same game. The other thing, and this is something that like Hobbs from Sisters Cattle Company says is like, you know, the price of raising beef the way we do is going to get to a point where it's unsustainable. And so by raising beef the way you and I want to, by the, the input costs coming down by just using regenerative practices, well, the whole industry is going to convert to that. So, you know, Tyson JBS and um, Cargill, they're going to be killing animals that were raised regeneratively because that's just what all the farmers are doing. And I can, I can definitely see, you know, I can see things going that direction, especially if input costs keep going up, fuel costs keep going up. Guys just aren't going to be able to afford the inputs. 
the worry is like, is it going to hit people like a brick wall or are enough people going to see it coming that they start getting away from those inputs and it like softens the crash? Yeah, it's definitely hard to say. And I certainly don't know enough about the traditional beef industry. No, I don't want to say traditional beef industry. I want to say the uh, industrial or the corporate beef industry and, and those who are, um, you know, who are forced to be within that system obviously farmers and ranches are stubborn and so i'm sure some will have to fail to learn that rule but you know gabe brown failed four years in a row and that's what led him to to find a new way and so hopefully more of those people find a new way through their failures before losing the farm and having to do something else altogether so that's certainly what i hope to see you know there the gabe brown story of going basically being broke and having no other choice. I've heard that repeated several times, you know, other speakers, guys, you know, other big farmers that that's how they got into regenerative agriculture. They just stumbled in it. They failed upward and stumbled into it because they got, they ran out of money to buy inputs and ran out of money to do stuff. And those are some of the best stories because I like my friend, Josh Hoy says nature plus one. It's just nature plus one just little nudges to try to try to nudge the system instead of brute force with all this diesel fuel and herbicide and pesticide and tillage equipment, you know, just these little nudges end up making a much bigger difference and a much healthier ecosystem over a long term. Have you read that book by Dan Griffith wild, like the flowers? I have not. That's a good one on regenerative agriculture. And, and it's, it's like a real, like, you know, emotional path to finding regenerative and how they farm as close with nature as possible. And so his pork system is he feeds them 10% of the grain that I do because I use the, you know, feed conversion ratio of 3.5 pounds of feed per one pound of meat, like the industry does. He feeds 10%. The hogs take longer to raise, but his production cost, it, he can sell $3 pound pork instead of $6 pound pork because he's got no inputs into them. And so he's mimicking a natural system. He's letting them forage for themselves. Yeah, they grow slower, but it creates a more accessible product and it creates a more natural farming system, that nature plus one model. And that was Dan Goodman? Dan Griffith, I believe Griffith. it is. What, what was the title of that book? Wild Like the Flowers. Wild Like the Flowers. I'm, I'll Try to make sure I put that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm, I'm like that in the sense that I started with nothing. I was broke, you know, a university student who with a broken body, I coming out of the mountain bike industry with thinking I'd be building mountain bike parks as my retirement from being a rider. And here I'm broken, so I can't do that no more. So I took farming on as an entrepreneurial endeavor where I could work outside and I could work at my own pace. So that's where I see that these four principles for farming are, are ways that anyone with no money can basically, you know, work a full-time job and get started and start super slowly and grow with their customer base and keep it as minimalistic as possible. Well, the biggest bottleneck for anyone who wants to be a livestock farmer is what is it? Capital money. Nope. No nope. place to play. 
if you can do it with no money and if you can do it on lease ground, what are you going to do with those animals? How are you going to direct market? You need a customer base. You need processing. Yes. So here on Vancouver Island, we went from five red meat plants and five poultry plants. And one owner on either side died within months of working. And, on e- and one owner on either side uh, retired with no succession plan because they just wanted out. They were burnt out. And this is since 2018 because we had lost more than that before in 2016 when there was regulation changes and some of these old abattoir owners didn't want to upgrade. And then back in 2006, there was another regulation change that also put a lot of small producers out of business. And so today we have one facility two hours south of us across the um, mountain pass um, for poultry processing. And we have one two hours north of us. And then we have the industrial plant, Island Farmhouse. Those are our three options for poultry processing. Um, now, what's different about driving two hours on Vancouver Island compared to driving two hours in the middle of America is that when you get on the highway here, it's a 70 mile per hour speed limit, 110 kilometers per hour, and stoplights. So for me to drop my pigs off at the processor in Courtney, two hours north of here, I have to go through seven stoplights from 70 miles an hour to stopped and then back up again. So two hours here is a lot more stressful than four hours (laughs) on an interstate highway. It, it takes me two hours to get to the interstate. So it, it's life is two lane roads going through small towns. Yeah. Yeah. So we have barely any slaughter capacity here. So many farmers have stopped raising birds, have stopped raising livestock because there's no processing. So I'm now in, if I want to grow my farm, I'm going to have to grow slaughter capacity on this Island. Okay. So I'm taking those four concepts that we talked about for farming and I'm applying to a slaughterhouse. So detach the land ownership from the farming. I'm going to find some lease land somewhere. So I'm nimble that I can, if it's the wrong context for the neighborhood, I can move. If the business goes out of business or doesn't work out, I can move. Um, and then, and then I'm not tying up capital in a property in a mortgage. Right. So I'm going to lease some land. The second piece is mobile. So I'm building a poultry plant in a shipping container and I'm going to, I've got plans for a pork and sheep line in a shipping container. And then we could build a red meat line in, or like a a beef line in a steel building with the concrete floor and build the hanging rails in a cage. So if we ever had to move off this lease property, a steel building is going to be useful for anyone, but we can just pull the cage out and we can move it elsewhere. And then direct marketing, oh, sorry, modular. So modular, I'm building these facilities as small as fiscally feasible. So I can build a poultry plant that slaughters three days a week, 300 birds a day. And on those two other days, we do cut and wrap. And that is as small as fiscally possible to build a little plant. And then if we outgrow that space, we're not going to grow that facility. We're going to build another one up island or down island or anywhere else that they're needed. A, a radius away that, you know, like a service radius away. Exactly. Yeah. Wherever people are driving furthest from. And then the last piece is direct marketing. So right now, when I go to Island Farmhouse, the industrial facility here and drop off my birds there, they give them back to me in a box of six birds per box. I can't sell six birds per box. 
I have to literally find another inspected kitchen in order to put those birds into an individual bag just to sell a whole bird, much less cut and wrap. So in my facility, a farmer is going to be able to drop off 100 birds and they can say, I want 50 of those cut up and I want 50 of them whole. Here's how I want them packaged. And this is where, what my label and pricing is so that they can pick up from my abattoir and go straight to market with them, straight to the farmer's market, straight to the grocery store, straight to whatever. And you would just function as a pass through, just taking, you know, just taking the minimum you needed to keep operating out of that revenue stream. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, competitive prices and, and to a point where the farmers can make a bunch of money doing this. Um, basically just exactly what I need for my farm. The numbers pencil out for me, make it um, work just the service that I need, but I'm, you know, doing 300 birds a day. That's about 30,000 a year. And, or three bird, 30, sorry, uh, 300 birds a day, three days a week, 10 months of the year is 30,000 birds a year. And I'm producing 2000 birds a year plus some turkeys. Okay. So you need 50 so, more guys doing what you're doing to make that work. So in December of last year, I sent out a survey on um, pretty intensive, you know, 25, 30 question survey. And I put it on uh, Facebook for two weeks. I got 94 respondents, every single one of them saying they're not satisfied with their current processing and that they would be thrilled to be my customer. <laughs> and so I got, and okay. that would absolutely fill the 30,000 birds a year um, and more and, and be ready to go for another facility in this area. And it's the exact same thing on the red meat side. So as soon as I get this poultry plant open, and I've been working really hard uh, since a year now, since November of last year to get one open, because uh, the one that I've been working at for the last two years, well, they closed to the public as of December last year. And then myself and my other colleague, he, he, he's been working there for uh, eight years or so. And so he bought all the equipment to do on-farm slaughter at his own house. Um, and so we've kept going with the same license this year, just for him, myself, and one other farmer. Okay. I, so I, I kind of want to, I kind of want to ask you what like the meat inspection system is like in Canada. Cause I, I have no idea what, what kind of hoops and food police rules you guys have to go through. Just like in the U S we have provincial inspection and federal inspection. Um, so federal is CFIA and that's, mostly just big plants. Um, I have not delved into that world yet. I work within the provincial inspected realm. So anything that is goes through a provincial plant can be sold within the province. Okay. So uh, there's three levels of inspection. There is uh, farm gate, which is new regulations that have been slightly modified so that a farm can do 5,000 pounds on their farm with no one on site. You just get a once a year inspection for your area. Then there's farm gate plus, which allows you to do 20,000 pounds, man. That's not even enough for like my own farm, much less, much less being able to create a fiscally feasible business. So a class a facility or an abattoir's license is an inspector on site every day that you slaughter and a inspected quote unquote kitchen by the local health authority and that's no limits on volume just limits on where you can sell okay you know that that farm gate plus you know twenty thousand pounds that's not you know real significant for the scale 
you're looking at, but me thinking, you know, average cow calf guy that's generally struggling to, to pay bills. If he could sell 20,000 pounds of meat direct and not have to go through the barn and the feedlot, that can make a really, really significant difference to the bottom line. For sure. So for my friend who I work with in the poultry facility, the joke is on Tuesdays we're teammates in the poultry plant. And then on Wednesdays we're competitors at the farmer's market. <laughs> so he is a uh, poultry breeder. That's his thing. And so that 20,000 pounds is enough for him to do everything he needs to do. Um, now I'm sure he'll do some of his stuff off the books because, um, because of those Turkey marketing boards, chicken marketing boards, there's certain, there's certain gray areas there that, um, that if they have too much control over your breeding flock, then there's, you know, securities for libertarian minded people. I'm not going to get into that. That's not my world. I work with inspected meat and I try to play by the rules and demonstrate how you can be very successful on a small scale with them. So what I'm doing is because I'm doing the red meat for a while, (laughs) sure have. So with what I'm doing is, you know, because I'm doing the red meat, that well puts me above that 20,000 pounds. And, um, and so I'm also trying to create the service for other farmers. Like there, as an entrepreneur, there is a niche that needs to be filled and that is slaughter for small farmers. And so if I'm the young guy who's got to do it because all these older people are retiring out of it or literally dying out of it, then, Hey, I'm gonna do it. It's going to allow me to grow my farm as large as I want it. And it's also going to allow a bunch of other people to start on the regenerative path. Okay. Let me uh, flip the tables on you. So how do you define regenerative agriculture? Oh man. You know, I, I was going to ask you that. Um, It'd be, you know, first you got to pay attention to six principles of soil health. You know, those have to be, those have to be first, Um, you know, which is, Minimize disturbance, bring grazing animals back, no tillage, no herbicides. Um, I'll just go ahead and skip the other two because I don't remember what they are right now. Um, low inputs. You know, if if you don't, if you can't grow it on the ranch, if you can't grow it on the farm, you really need to think, do I need to spend the money to buy this? And I started thinking in things like, how many cull cows does this cost me? So what is regenerative? things that don't destroy things that regenerate things that that you're actively working to improve over time you know and i and i realize that regenerative means something a little bit different to everybody uh i'm just glad we quit using the term sustainable honestly because <laughs> there wasn't anything good about trying to be sustainable it's pretty bad and screwed up let's let's make this better yeah, we cannot sustain what we're doing right now. No. My question is, is can we can we sustain it long enough? Or not sustain it long enough. Can we switch to regenerative practices fast enough? I guess is the real question that I have. For me, regenerative comes back to number one, the context and how the context is different for everyone. And so that's why everyone's definition of regenerative is going to be different because everyone has a different context and the context for me is different than my neighbor is different than you. And our context is different than in India. But the other thing about it is 
my context today is certainly different than it will be, you know, tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now or a hundred years from now when I want my farming operation to still be going forward. So regenerative is most important about focusing on the context, which is the polar opposite of the industrial system where they're trying to fit everyone into the same context. Another regenerative agriculture book just came out on Audible, and it's called One Size Fits None. And I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but it's about her growing up on a cattle operation and thinking it was the norm, her being a writer for the ag industry, and then discovering regenerative and how there is so much a better way because everyone's failing at industrial agriculture because the industry is trying to force everyone into the same context versus regenerative agriculture where we honor we respect and we really flourish by respecting that everyone's context is going to be different so i'll drag up a term that i learned in that school that shall not be named or not not a term but let's say a concept um i will call it the pareto principle so the pareto principle basically says that 80 percent of your result comes from 20% of your effort and that 80% of your effort is responsible for 20% of your result. And I like that ratio. Okay. And I'm thinking about it in the terms of shared context. So we can all agree on this shared context of regenerative agriculture. And as long as we're seeing eye to eye on about 80% of it, I think that's a pretty good place to be. And I think that's probably close enough for everybody and you know now that we say context and we've said it about a half a dozen times that that's one of that's usually the sixth principle of soil health that is tacked on there at the end is know your context because what's regenerative and what's contextually appropriate for me here might not work on vancouver island but the principles of regenerative agriculture are going to generally remain the same no matter where you are on this, on this floating rock. Right. And that also lends to how this is very complex. It's not complicated. Complicated is putting someone on the moon. We can control every variable in that. But in ecosystem management or in social structures, like the social work that my dad and uh, my wife do, you know, you, there is always a moving variable. When we're out in the field working with animals, there's always a moving variable. And so that's why it's a very contextually complex thing. And that's why we have to very much honor the difference. And in the industrial model, again, the polar opposite, they are trying to control every single movement, every single element, have no moving variables. 80% doesn't fit in an industrial model. Like they, they want that 99 or 98%. Like you can't just, does that make sense what I'm saying? Like it absolutely does. Yeah. And I love that you brought up Pareto's principle because I live by it because I do five things. I have a poultry, pastured poultry production system. I have a forest pork system. I have a grazing system and I have a meat marketing business and I'm building abattoirs. And so I am doing all of those at a B minus 80% because 
because I spend 20% of my time on each, but I only get a B minus because I'm only doing 80%. <laughs> now I'm achieving 400 times what I would if I was just focusing on one of those things and achieving 100% at it. Right but I do have some loose ends. And so that's where I want to develop an internship program to get some help. And what I'll do is with these interns, I'm not going to give them the grunt work. I'm good at the grunt work. Yes. They'll do some chores to learn every aspect of what I have going on, but I want them to focus on is all those additional things. Like I want them to get going on pasture map because that's something that I can't do to get to hundred percent. So I want them to focus on all those 20% tasks to get us to the 100% of the goal, I want them to focus on that so that when they go on to their own operation and they're doing the work that I am, that 80% of the work with 20% of my time, well, they already have the practice, the knowledge, the know-how, they know what that additional stuff is to get them ahead of where I can be right now. Well, tell me a little bit more about your internship program. You're still developing that? Yeah, it's something that I would like to get going for next year, but uh, I've been very focused with the computer time that I have to be working on building the abattoir. Uh, but I would like to have two interns come uh, the beginning of the year, uh, just before my first set of broilers show up. Uh, and then uh, I would give, it would be a um, unpaid internship, but they would get a position in the poultry plant. So if they need some living expenses, they can work in the poultry plant to learn that side of things and, and get a paycheck that way. Uh, but they would stay with me for about nine months and, and, and work through what it means to be a regenerative rancher. And the goal would be that they spend a year with me and then they're ready to go to build their own operation with confidence. And so what I say is I'm building my farm without taking any debt. Everything's just cash flow and, you know, a couple little, you know, 3,000, $4,000 credit cards that just cash flow feed bills. So what I want them to do is to be able to come out either come into the internship with a nest egg ready to build their own farm or come into the internship. And when they're done, they have the confidence to go get a loan and build a farm and jump to that, that level where I'm working towards to have a full-time income doing this. So I figure there's four ways to get into farming and ranching. First, you're born into it. Secondly, you go to ag school and get a degree in it the way CK did. Third, you spend a lot of time working for free, interning, volunteering, and you learn on someone else's dime. If you and four, grow up on a ranch, you spend a lot of time working for free. <laughs> yeah, similar <laughs> concept, right? Experience. And the fourth way is the way I'm doing it, whereas you dump all your time and money into it and learn all your own mistakes. I'm doing a little bit of that too. That's, that's, I think we all do. That's to a I, certain extent, we're all somewhere in between a couple of those. Look, you pay for an education no matter what, okay? Just because I don't have a piece of paper on a wall with the name of a university at the top, that doesn't mean that I haven't paid large sums of money for the education that's in my head. Education about how the land works, education about how to deal with people, education about cattle. You know, whether or not does it make sense what I'm saying? Like, you know, there's a lot of education. And even if you're learning some of these hard lessons in livestock or, you know, in, in how to build an abattoir or how to, you know, what a proper quail enclosure looks like, you're going to pay money for that knowledge one way or the other. 
You got it. Absolutely. I've had a couple big learning experiences that I paid dearly for. Uh, one, it looks like I might lose a lease that I've been working towards uh, working out for the future. And so I've already invested some money in permits and legal fees to get stuff set up and about eight months of going through a, a, a permitting. And then I've lost money on this past year. So then on my birthday had a water failure. We had the heat dome and a water system failed when I was up working at the poultry plant. So I didn't catch it. And I took 280 kilograms of eight week old, seven pound massive broilers dead to the, the dump. And, you know, my first batch of pigs, a half hog that I was trying to save fresh in a refrigerator and it was wrapped up. And by the time I came back to it a few days later, it went bad. So that went in a hole, you know, you pay for these, these things because you make do with what you got until you've got what you need. And that's as much in infrastructure and equipment as it is in knowledge and experience. And just like, you know, that good infrastructure, it costs a lot of money. And sometimes you've got to, you've got to gain some experience with less than optimal infrastructure before you have the money to buy the good infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. And just learning from mistakes and, and it, that's, that's all you can do is just learn and move forward, not get discouraged. And tenacity and dedication is about the best EQ to get started in this industry. And so, you know, it's, it's similar in my mountain bike career. Like I, I figured if I did, if we were there just riding at the jumps and just practicing, just hanging out with buddies, that if I did more runs than absolutely everyone there every single day, that I would come out ahead. And it's the same as this, you know, every day you go out and you do your chores, that is one rep. And every set is like at the gym, a set. Well, that's every season or every year or every batch of poultry or batch of hogs or whatever. That's, that's a set. And every day of chores is a rep. And we're just working out, building these muscles, these building these farming muscles, building these business skill muscles. I can see that. I was, uh, I was just sitting here thinking you're, you know, been talking about mountain biking and, you know, I, I've never ridden a, I'm not much of a biker. I never have been. I mean, you can see the background. This is, this is what my pastures look like. You don't really ride bicycles across there. However, so some people might've heard of uh, a bike race called the dirty Kansas. It's held over, over in Eastern Kansas and the Flint Hills. It's like, 200 kilometers or 150 kilometers bike race dig it yeah a few years ago um what's what's turned into what's it's called the open range gravel race open range 200k and part of it comes across my ranch and last year i had seven and a half miles of road across the ranch like and we're talking everything like the best I sent him down was a two track. I sent him down some, some fairly decent two track roads, some pasture trails. And then there are a couple places to connect things. I just took my skid steer and my mower and mowed a path right through the pasture. Like wonderful. Didn't even drive and knock it down. So they call it grassville instead of gravel. They call it grassville when I just mow a trail through the pasture. So this year, um, 
we should be having a course planning meeting. Eric should be down soon. And we're going to start working on planning the course out for next year. I'm not sure how many miles he's going to give me, but he has promised me more miles this year. So we're going to hopefully go from seven and a half and maybe look uh, a little closer to about 12 and five or six Creek crossings. If I can uh, be mean enough to him. <laughs> like, Wonderful. And when I say Creek crossing, I mean like they would have to ride up, stop, get off and carry the bicycle across you're definitely yeah. getting wet on this ride well you're gonna have to give me a call before you start doing that planning because i you know as part of my outdoor wreck adventure tourism certificate i got a degree in or i got certificates both in in two classes of trail building and then i went on to build mountain bike trails and parks with the instructor from there so my summer jobs through university was building these mountain bike parks all across canada and I can tell you from building, you know, both courses for races and building trails that mowing a pasture and having to trudge through grass is torture. So make sure you put a lot more of that in. <laughs> I, I try to mow it as short as I can, but, you know, it, it only goes so short. And, you know, those guys are those big fat tire bikes. Like the guy, it's 200 kilometers, right? And there's a lot of it that's that's sand. That's basically county roads that are pretty fine sand. So there'll be a lot of guys that, you know, they'll look at some of the route and be like, oh, I'll bring my fat tire bike. And they'll bring, you know, a bike with like a three or four inch wide tire, which is great until you get in the grass. And then they hate it. And uh, we had a guy uh, a couple of years ago, wrote a, he wrote a fixie on that race. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I see my, the ranch is usually I'm before halfway on the 200 K like I'm around set, like kilometer number 75, I think is about where I'm at, where they usually enter off of. And it was, uh, it was like kilometer 92 going off and I saw him and he was just, he was in pain. He was hurting. Cause I think it was about the fifth or sixth, um, hill that I'd made him climb at, you know, 180 feet a shot. Okay, so just for our listeners who don't know what a fixie is, it's a it's this fad where you ride a bike with no free coaster. So you cannot coast. It's got a fixed crank to the hub. And so these these bikes are, are originated on the board tracks. And then kids in San Francisco started riding them on the streets. And then it was a fad. So then we're applying fixed gears to everything. So there's no coasting and you're on a single speed. And so trying to trudge through every condition that Kansas can throw at you on a fixed gear is literal recreational torture. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I think it was 2020 or maybe it was 2019 that he did that. And I know he came back for the race this year and he was not on a fixie this year. <laughs> I would imagine so. Yeah. I think he had a real bike this year. But, oh, it's, it's really cool. And you know, I get a lot of people ask me like, well, that's a lot of work to put in. Yeah, you know, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, there's some cost in going out, you know, the diesel fuel to go out and mow and, and mark and do whatever. But I look at it this way. I've got a pretty cool place. And what better way to share it with a really diverse group of people than, than to let them ride their bicycles across? I mean, I don't. I know I don't have to tell you, but there were probably at least 25 or 28 states represented in, in last year's race. You know, 
there were even several foreign countries. Like there's people, there were several sponsored writers. I think there was even a guy that writes for Red Bull that, uh, that came out some, some other, some other bike names. Anyway, it's just, it's really neat to be able to share, you know, the beauty of the Red Hills and the beauty of Kansas with people from all over. And they're not zipping through in a Jeep. They're not blasting through in a side-by-side. They're not going through in a car or motorcycle. They're on a bicycle. It's just them, the wind, other people on the bikes, out on the prairie, and they're there to experience nature. And I think there's something really cool about that. So every year I get to meet, you know, 100, 150, sometimes 200 new friends as they ride across the ranch. And I think that's pretty cool. Absolutely. And, you know, what we do is we're educating people on this industry and what we do. And because we do something so different than the norm that we really need to tell people about it. So in my degree, thinking I build businesses in mountain biking, well, I switched my interest back to agriculture before my last term of university. So my graduating thesis was connecting uh, aquaponics with tourism. And I had to convince my instructors to let me do this. But my findings were that no one knows what aquaponics is the same way no one knows what regenerative agriculture is. And so we need to educate. And that's how we will sell our product is by, you know, educating through farm tours, tourism and events like you're doing with this cycling event, whether it's being at the farmer's market, being direct to the customer, being face to face with the person buying so you can tell the story. We're selling stories. Or by education, by having, you know, I'm going to have elementary school kids coming to do farm tours next year um, from preschool to doctorate research, education, every type of uh, uh, every sense of the institutional education system can be involved on our ranches. I've got a master's student who's doing uh, the connection between emotional intelligence and regenerative soil health. And that's what her research is. And so she did soil tests and is doing a number of surveys with myself and a bunch of other farmers across this province. So by you doing this, this event with the cyclist, there's so much crossover between cyclists and regenerative agriculture because they get it. They're health conscious. They care about the environment and they want a cool story and aren't afraid of hard work. It, your comment, you're like, they care about what they eat. They care about nutrition. I just... You're not wrong, but I also think that, you know, maybe they might be looking at nutrition through an outdated paradigm. <laughs> I mean, everyone I, is, I don't want to, I, I don't want this to sound bad. I don't want this to sound like I found a bunch of trash. Okay. Like, look, I had 150 people come across seven and a half miles of my rough ass ranch on bicycles. Okay. I found like a couple granola bar wrappers, a couple energy gel packet things, and a couple of water bottles. It's not a big deal. Like I guarantee you there's more trash that gets thrown out in the four miles of highway that run through the ranch than those guys left. But like, I I don't know. Okay, but you got to give them that they're in their big race, so they want to pretend like they're the Olympic athlete who, you know, all the all the yeah, you know, they're, on they're, them. They can do doing whatever the thing they need because to, right? they think it's going to give them the, advantage and keep the energy level up. But you know, I yeah, like they want to do the Tour de France thing where they run by the guy holding the cup out, slam that cup and toss it on the ground, and then someone's going to grab it and hope that they sign it later, right? They're they're it's their moment of glory. Of course, you know, it's disrespectful and they know better. But oh no, 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 no! Like I. 
like they tried it. I, I've never seen anybody drop anything on purpose or throw anything down. Like they, they're, this group is super awesome. Like, you know, they'll eat something and they stuff it in their pocket. Like I've even seen stuff fall off of bikes or fall out of pockets and they keep going. Like nobody wants to drop a full water bottle. You know, those, those bicycling water bottles are freaking expensive. Nobody wants well, to drop one on. Unless you're competing super hard and you have finished that bottle and you want to drop the weight. So you just leave it <laughs> wherever you finished it and you go on to your next bottle. But I think the thing yeah, is, this like, isn't that kind of group, <laughs> you know, there's a time and a place and, and, you know, probably when they're on your ranch is not the place to be dropping that. But when they're passing by the pit station, you know, that's where you drop it, where there's a, a course marshal who's going to pick up after it. Um, but it's kind of the same thing with like, you know, with, with agriculture and stuff, you know, there's a time and a place for grazing, you know, mowing down the Amazon forest to create pasture land is not the right place. But, you know, here on Vancouver Island, areas that have been cleared since uh, the settlers have been here and it has been in pasture for the last 150 years. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great place to be grazing and absolutely where you're at. Great place to be grazing. Um, so, you know, both time and place and and that applies to, to so many things, of course, going back to our context conversation, right? Yeah. And I was just, just thinking, I've been saying this on the podcast and I, it seems like I say it all the time, but you know, I realize that these episodes are spaced out, you know, one a week or so, but you know, like you're talking about ranching on cleared forest ground and, you know, you've got some forest ground to run pigs on. I don't have any understanding of that kind of contextual management as my management context is grasslands. And so say the ranch is, it's at least 80% old growth grassland and a hundred percent native range. And the difference is native range. You can reestablish after you've been farmed because that's just describing the native variety of plants the native variety of, of forages that are out there on the land. But if you say, if you use a term like old growth grasslands, similar to talking about an old growth forest, an old growth forest has never been disturbed, right? Right. An old growth grassland likewise hasn't been disturbed because grazing animals when they're properly managed is not a disturbance. Right. You know, it's, it's a challenge for me because I want to honor the indigenous roots here because when the settlers came to victoria they could not believe the grasslands and the meadows they thought it was beautiful it looked like england where they grazed ruminants and things like that but it was because that the grounds were being managed by selective burning and the first nations left it as this you know it looked natural to the the westerners but in fact, it was very well managed. And so that's a big mission for me moving forward is to learn as much as I can about indigenous management of these areas. Because when I describe my pigs in the forest, I describe it as participating with nature the same way the, a herd of elk moving through this forest would have. You know, today we have elk herds of like, I think there's 30 and a herd of 40 on, on the island. But, you know, couple hundred years ago it would have been hundreds of animals so when a couple hundred animals come through the forest and bed down for the night they're going to do some disruption they're going to do some disturbance um have an impact so we're 
participating in nature by creating that impact and then moving the pigs on. In regenerative agriculture, we talk about the edge effect. So the most biodiversity is found at the edge of the ocean and the shore, the uh, estuaries, the riverbank, the edge between forest and pasture. And I also play with the edge between suburban and rural properties. And so playing with this edge, I think about, you know, native species and how could I replant old growth forests? Something's going on in the audio today. Got to back up to uh, old growth forests. Okay. Um, and so you got the whole edge effect and now we're on to old growth, you think? Yes. Okay. Let me just see if I could set up a phone hotspot, if that would help any. I, I recorded one of these on Monday uh, with Sage Askin from Wyoming, and he was actually coming through. So I borrowed a friend's podcast studio and we got to do one face to face. And that was a lot of fun. That was, that was awesome. We're back. I think we're back. Perfect. Okay. Now I'm the Bluetooth hotspot. So hopefully it's going to work a lot better. Um, you had just said um, you interviewed Sage in Wyoming. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking. Um, so I'll probably edit this out, but Monday uh, my friend Sage Askin was, was traveling through and he wanted to come down and see the ranch. So we went out and showed him, you know, drove around cows, drove around the ranch for about four or five hours, then toured up to, uh, toured up to Pratt and I borrowed my friend's studio to do a podcast. And we did it in person. I tell you, that was, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun to do it in person. So yeah, with the radio show I do, I usually just record it and then send it in. Um, but we did one show live in studio and we're going to do the next two shows before Christmas uh, live in studio. So I got that coming tomorrow on Thursday. Excited about that. I've done a couple of live radio shows. Uh, well, I've done the same one twice and, you know, yeah. it's a two hour deal and, you know, like, you know, you, you've listened to a lot of my episodes and I try to keep them, you know, try to get out there, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. It's totally different like when you're trying to do an ad break and it puts you in a different mindset when you know you're live. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like I know I can't say that because there's no chance to go back and edit that out. And you're more conscious about, you know, stumbling over yourself or filler words. Whereas, you know, format like this, I go pull a bunch of that stuff out. Not that I usually do, but I can. Yeah, for so. sure. All right. Back to old growth for us. Yes. I get criticism from some people who ask, why don't you try and replant trees into an old growth forest? Instead, you're talking about grass management, but our natural ecosystem is not a grass-based model compared to where you are, Brian. And I say, yes, but we have established pastures here and pasture and grass production can sequester carbon at a wonderfully beneficial huge amount. And so I will focus on that, but also be replanting old growth forests. So creating more edge effect by planting trees in ways that in the future that will turn into shade for my animals or, or fodder for my animals. And so it's a combination. I'm also trying to change the microbiome by re-fertilizing these fields that either have been hayed for decades 
or that have been neglected and abandoned for decades. Like what I do in the forest with the pigs is I go in there, I create the disruption and I also uh, fertilize. So I have not gotten into any planting, whether it's on my pastures or in the forest. I am just in the observation stage, as they would say in per permaculture, where I am going to see what comes back. I'm going to see what species, once I change that microbiome by adding the fertility, by rotating my ruminant animals who have never seen ivermectin, by having the, the cake effect of the pastured poultry moving across the fields, creates that protective insulated layer that then two weeks later, this green grass comes punching through. We're changing the biome and allowing the pre-existing latent seed bank to come back. They say seeds as old as 100 years old, when they have the right environment, will come back. So I can be accessing the historic seed bank by just changing that ecosystem within the soil surface. It kind of reminds me of a conversation I had with another friend this morning. As uh, we we're talking about how we're how we're supplementing and managing our pastures through this winter, because it's it's a little bit of a challenging winter. Um, I'm not going to say it's cold because it's not. You know, it's pretty warm, but we haven't had any moisture. So, like if I can get good moisture any time in the fall, I'll grow a bunch of good cool season grass. I don't have it right now because it's been so dry. It's been dry for almost two months. So I'm having to supplement with a bunch of alfalfa, you know, so the cows get some protein and they can use the dry, you know, the dry cured pasture grass. And we're talking about, you know, different uh, supplementation strategies. And the more I want to stick to being regenerative and low input and, and keep my cows on that low input program, alfalfa might be the best they're going to get. And hopefully I can become a, I can manage for some of those cool season grasses and encourage them to grow from the seed bank. Cause like you said, you know, the seed bank here in, in my deep prairie soils, there could be 50,000 viable seeds per cubic meter of soil. And that just blows my mind. Like every species that you could possibly want in your pasture is probably already there just in seed form. All you have to do is create the correct conditions of fertility and climate for that seed to germinate, take root and sprout. Absolutely. And it's just a matter of returning to these, to participating with nature. I, you know, ever since reading that book we mentioned earlier by Dan Griffith, Wild Like the Flowers, you know, he says he doesn't like the term mimicking nature. We're not mimicking it. This isn't a controlled science experiment. We are participating with it. We are out in nature participating with it. And so by participating with our livestock in a way to create that, those deep roots, that deep organic matter, that we're going to access that seed bank that's already there. It's just another example of how regenerative practice was, will reduce the input costs. You know, there's a 12 acre lease. I bought a bunch of hay off this family and well, it's not a lease yet, but I've approached the family saying, you know, what are you paying for fertilizer? And what are you paying for diesel to be hanging that off? And this is all just so that you can uh, get your farm tax. Well, how about I save you all that labor, all of that uh, diesel, all of the hassle of having to sell that hay and I'll fertilize it for free. So you're going to have a green pasture 
and you're going to have some animals out there and you're going to get your farm tax and I'm probably going to feed you some really good food at the same time. So, you know, there's so much opportunity, especially in a place like this for lease land and by approaching the lease land, because it's not a huge monetary gain to a family to be leasing the farmland out that it, it needs to be a land services message that we're offering in order to that's a great point that's a great point for these small acreages make it less about the money and more about the service you're providing right because the the when i moved to vancouver island here or even before i did so it would have been christmas 2018 i met up with asia jones martin of the young agrarians and so that's an organization in canada that helps young farmers connect with landowners as well as a number of other programs that they have they have a business boot camp right now and i asked asia i was like so i don't even know what the going rate for lease land is around here she's like oh well for you know good market garden land with water uh electricity and maybe some fence it's usually 200 to 350 per acre and so i'm like oh okay so i'm going to be paying about if i want five acres to start pasture poultry i'm going to be paying about a thousand dollars a month I guess I could work that. She's like, no, 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 not per month. Lease is annual. And I was like, what? <laughs> so you're saying for $1,000 a year, I can be on five acres. Meanwhile, our real estate market here in British Columbia is one of some of the highest in the world. Vancouver, the big city, has been announced as the most expensive real estate in the world lately. And so for me to get five acres of bare land with no amenities, it would be a quarter million dollars. And so I'd have a mortgage of, 1200 bucks a month, much less leasing these properties for $1,000 a year. And not only that, but this is a huge retirement community because everyone from the mainland retires over to the Vancouver Island. So a ton of retirees own these little estates that they can't manage, especially as they're aging. And so it's an opportunity for young farmers to come in, which also gives them the opportunity, the farmer to build their business so that by the time that that elderly person is ready to sell their property, that the young person has built their business to a point where they can leverage against their business cash flow in order to secure the property and purchase it outright after they've been operating for five, 10 years. And so, you know, it's a similar opportunity with COVID and what we've seen around work from home. And so young people my age in their 30s and 20s and 30s on the mainland who have these professional positions, they've always wanted to move to Vancouver Island and buy a little homestead or something like that. Well, now with the ability to work from home, they can move to Vancouver Island, they can buy that property, but they don't necessarily have the time to farm it, but they support regenerative agriculture and the movement. So now, you know, the people in the city that are laborers, they can move here and then they can then lease and they can lease from the young professionals who own the property. And in a partnership, they can get these small acreages back into production. And for someone like myself doing regenerative agriculture with livestock, I can link together a couple of these properties. Like the 50 acre property that I'm on can connect to the seven acres where the neighbor also raises St. Croix sheep like I do. And then we could walk up this little driveway uh, across the road and down the little side street cul-de-sac to my original five acre lease. And then through my dog trainer has seven acres of, of forest. I could raise some pigs in there. And that connects across the corner of my friend's property onto a 35 acre uh, grazable 
pasture field that used to be an old dairy that has nothing's been done with it for 15 years. So I could connect about a hundred acres of land on seven properties within this neighborhood. And I could walk the animals across it all with some of those properties within city limits, all five minutes from downtown here on Vancouver Island. And so if that's what I can do squeezed between the ocean and the mountains, man, I can't imagine what you could do anywhere more open than this. Yeah. But then there's the question of market of how far do you have to go to a market and for where I'm at? Yeah. It seems like I, you know, I have a lot of land. I have a lot of resource, but what I don't have is population density anywhere within a reasonable distance. Right. So I have to look, you know, I'm looking at some different models but we, you know, maybe I'll get into that later at a different, uh, different episode. Having a market and being close to a market is very important because if nobody, you can have the best stuff in the world, but if only three people within two hours drive want it, you don't really have much of a market for it. But if you have a city like Vancouver or you have you know, or you're close to it where, you know, you're getting a bunch of, let's call them expats that are coming out of the city, you know, trying to escape their, their filing cabinets for yuppies or filing cabinets for millennials, whatever they are this year. They're trying to, they're trying to get back out and get to the land and do this remote work. And then, you know, you have some, you know, a laborer laid off laborer comes out and says, Hey, I can do quail and chickens and goats in everybody's backyards and, and gets that started up. There's, there's still, you know, we're still talking about having a density of population that's not very common out here on the plains, I guess is what I'm getting at. So being close to an urban environment, being able to take advantage of some of those things. Um, who was it? Another episode we did, I think that was Brittany Cole Bush in the Ojai Valley of California does something very similar uh, to what you're doing, but she does a lot with sheep and goats. Right. And, and of course, she also has the market, even though I don't believe she's accessed it yet, because she hasn't started harvesting her flock, she's just growing it. So she has more ability to manage land. And, and so, you know, I think it goes back to things that Mike Calicrate has said on your podcast around the food hubs. And so, or not necessarily food hubs, but public markets. Right. And so, you know, there's enough people in the cities in that are getting passionate about regenerative agriculture, but because their partner has a city job where they're fixed, you know, they want to, or or their city people want to stay in the city, but they want to be participating in the regenerative agriculture movement. And so that's the opportunity where you partner with someone on a marketing business that is in town and you're just the producer for them. But because you're direct marketing, because it's this partnership that you have equity in the marketing business that allows you to get more of that food dollar uh but allows you to be out in the middle of nowhere managing the ground that we need to be managed appropriately with ruminants because it's equally as important to have those rural far distant places managed like my big hairy audacious goal is to live out my childhood dream of being a rancher horseback every day and the way i see doing that is pairing my tourism degree with my love of moving animals daily. So, you know, I buy a hundred, 200 acre home base in the interior, you know, many miles from, from any big urban city, 
but we build a guest ranch there. And so, you know, I always describe this as the traditional model, as Greg Judy would say, the, the uh, Columbus method of range management is you turn the cows out in the spring and then you hire a bunch of cowboys to go wrangle those uh, ornery cows that haven't seen humans in six months and bring them out back out of the mountain. So it's a big cow drive once a year. So if we're trying to move these animals daily, well, you can't be hiring $300 a day day workers, day cowboys. So instead what we do, I might have to edit that out, man. Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta drop that number guys around here work a lot cheaper. All right. Well, what we need to do is we need to create this experience where we have a couple good cowboys and we have translators who speak Asian languages and European languages and South American languages so that we bring the the businessmen and their families to the ranch. They get the ranch experience. We saddle them up every morning and we send them up into the hills where we have a very tame set of cows that knows the routine moves every day because we don't have to drive them all the way back to town. We have to just move them from here to there. So we load up on the, we load, load up the guests on their horses. We run them up into the hills. We have breakfast on the range. We move the cows from here to here, you know, just a small move. And then they have lunch on the range and they come back for the rest of the afternoon. And so this is a way to the create a profit center out of moving the cows instead of it being an expense of moving the cows on a large scale, on a much larger scale than what I can do in an urban center. And so this is how in a, in a, you know, still I would want to be a couple hours from an airport, you know, this isn't going to work everywhere, right? but this is just one of the many models on how you could, how you could incorporate more into uh, th- this is the model that I would like to take to do regenerative management on a large scale on thousands of acres, not dozens of acres. Like I do today. It's, it's scaling is the question it's it's scaling and it's bringing more people on board and letting them have a little piece. So one model that I have um, I've been entertaining is the kind of like the cow share model. So families who really want to get involved with regenerative agriculture and they want to literally invest in regenerative agriculture well, I'm selling them stocks, not stocks and bonds, but livestock. And so a family can buy a U, for example, for $250 and they pay a service fee, which is, you know, it, it's my custom grazing. So it's my custom grazing offering where they pay, you know, 50 cents a day to keep a sheep. And then... Uh, their stock, when that you drops a lamb, well, their stock is either giving them a dividend. If it's a ram lamb, then Glass and Farms is going to buy that for the meat herd. Or if that drops a ewe lamb, then it's their stock is splitting. And so now they have two ewes to breed back next year. And so this is a model that would allow me to grow my farm faster. So allow me to scale up my ruminant herd. Cause I would do this with ewes and I would also do this with, um, with cows in order to scale up my breeding herd faster than I can on my own dollar. And it involves families getting involved to feeling like they have ownership. You know, the BC Cattlemen's Association, you need to own three cows to be a member. So anyone could buy three cows that I'm managing within this system and they can now be a part of the Cattlemen's Association. And so this is a way for people to, allow us to scale. It's just one example of a way you can scale a business um, on someone else's dollar 
getting families and people interested in regenerative agriculture. And you can bet that that person who owns an animal in your herd is going to be the loudest advocate in the city, teaching people about your product, probably selling those, those meat animals that come out of theirs. Right. So it's yeah. a great opportunity. Just another interesting route. Yeah, I, I can see that, you know, somebody that, uh, just take our, our stereotypical cube farm dweller that lives in a filing cabinet for yuppies and millennials buys three cows joins the cattlemen's association then they get their first box of meat they think it's just absolutely amazing and delicious you you have a true believer there 100 like, percent. not just a customer you have a true true believer there Exactly. You have a, a business partner who is pushing it like your business is their own. And, you know, this isn't something that I invented. This is something that Greg Judy does with his landowners, that they have the opportunity to buy into his herd. Well, I'm just thinking it. Uh, you know, the most important thing for people to have in their food system is buy-in, like emotional buy-in. Yeah. And that this is the you know, that's that seems like a really good way to make sure that you that we get more people not just producers we get consumers emotionally bought in to the production practice absolutely and then the consumer also feels has the feeling of being the producer they have ownership of being part of the production and so, you know, it's a very strong means of getting people involved, even city people to be involved in your operation. And then through our storytelling, whether it's people hearing about your farm through your listening to your podcast or through our social media, um, or like for me, Clubhouse is my, my favorite place to speak on these things and being able to share these stories. Well, those are now their stories. As, as much as being a customer to our farm, they're absolutely, I always say the customer of the regenerative farm is the most important part that they are the heroes of the regenerative movement because we farmers cannot do what we do without the customer, but taking it to the next step and allowing the customer to become a producer, just all the more buy-in, all the more uh, conviction, all the more sec food security, because if anything was to happen, well, they got their name on that cow. They can, you know, let's all shut her down over here together and cash out their stuff. Exactly. Cash out your stock or, or continue eating off your stock despite whatever happens in the market. And that's the other thing is, okay, so yes, you can have a dividend split when you have another baby cow or, or, or you, or you can have a, um, a dividend return um, with a steer calf or a ram lamb, or you say, I'm going to save that one out. And at the end of the year, I'll pay for, pay for the processing on that one's going in my own freezer. Um, so it's, it's just a, a really cool model that I want to entertain and, and kind of do a marketing campaign around. Like in order to start my poultry business, I did a crowdfunding campaign. And as much as in a crowdfunding campaign, I had things like stickers and farm tours and t-shirts that people could buy. No one bought that stuff. Everyone just bought, they just pre-purchased chickens. Everyone pre-purchased chickens and I sold out my entire first batch. That was the, it was the Kickstarter I need. That was the goal was to sell chickens and I was doing these other things 
just cause and no one was interested in the other things they bought chickens. And so I would like to run another crowdfunding campaign now that I've scaled my business up where now I'll sell things like CSA memberships. So I sell 25 chickens and you take them as you need them through the poultry season. Um, I can pre-sell half hogs. I can, and then I can sell the livestock, sell these ewes, sell these cows. And then I can really, I think that'll be how I'll get into the cattle industry is because it's a big investment to start up. But if I have this help and buy-in, you know, every, for me, as I say, like in order for my meat marketing business to work out, all I need is to sell six head of beef a year. And so, you know, it's, it's not a stretch to, to sell cows to other people and to, you know, say I sell um, a dozen cows, I can assume I'm going to get my six steer calves back and, and my mar meat marketing business, the numbers work out. I'm grazing cattle. I'm doing more better beneficial impact on more, more acres with cattle. Um, it's, it's a way to start. It's just another unique way of getting into this industry with no money and no experience and just doing it and just finding a unique way to do it. Just breaking down those barriers to entry. And that was, you know, that's one of the themes that I wanted to talk to you about is how do we break down some of these barriers of entry and get more people, you know, that, that are maybe a little disillusioned with, you know, the degree that they paid for or the job that they have that they thought was their dream job. How do we get more people that are disillusioned with what they're doing and dissatisfied and in a mentally unhealthy place? How do we get them back out on the land with livestock? Yeah. And I, you know, it's, I'm a risk taker. I am not adverse to risk, you know, yeah. As it, as evident by, you know, riding steers as a teenager and riding mountain bikes in my twenties and, you know, hucking myself off things or, or my interest in entrepreneurial endeavors. But with my lack of fear of risk, I am trying to create these safer opportunities for people to get involved, whether it's the internship program where someone can learn on my dime, they can come learn from my mistakes or in a sense of, of a family being able to get involved first by buying into my herd, but maybe that's their first step into experiencing, following along, learning until the point where they can make a transition onto living on a rural property. And I think the biggest thing is just breaking down the barrier of money and finance. There's so many ways to find a little bit of cash to get going. And there's so many ways to avoid the expenses that are just assumed when we think about agriculture, because we're so accustomed to an industrial model that is so heavy on infrastructure. But there are so many ways to so many workarounds that just by being creative uh, and by networking with people who are doing innovative things that we can find these models. And that's where Joel Salatin has always been a leader of, of saying that it's an open opportunity for anyone to get into this industry and, and breaking down those barriers. So I think that's super important for anyone who's interested in this. But again, the number one thing, just going back to what I said a little while ago is being a customer first and, and anyone who's a customer and, and, and a vocal customer and an advocate of this industry, that is absolutely the first step. 
and we need more customers and we need more loud vocal people to spread awareness because I say it like around the education. So if I can get a hundred school age children to my farm, I don't expect they're all going to become farmers, but I do expect that all of them are going to think about that experience when they're older. I bet that 20% of them at some point in their life are going to think about an experience on the farm and they're going to grow a little bit of their own food, or they're going to uh, think twice about what they eat. And I bet, you know, 1% or 3% of them at some point in their life will be working, producing food in the food industry based on their interest sparked on my farm. And I bet half a percent of those will become some of the best farmers in our area. And so it's just a matter of running the cycle of putting regenerative agriculture through people's minds yes. and, and the awareness that we have to do. That one in 100 sales conversion rate. Yeah. Because right now, you know, the, the industrial uh, organic industry is what, like one and a half percent of the entire food market and regenerative has to be a fraction of that. Right. So we have so much work to do just to move it forward. Now, when we go back to the reference of craft beer, I believe it is 30% of the beer market is now craft beer. And so they have gone from nothing to a significant market share. And that's the model we need to follow is by decentralizing our food systems. And it doesn't have to be all, all, all of it, but just increasing how much of our food is produced in a better way. Like you might raise the best chicken, pork, and turkey on Vancouver Island. And I'll have I to take your word for it because there's probably you know, between here and there, I could drive an hour your direction and find pasture poultry, pasture turkey, and pasture pigs. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with your meat, but why would I buy yours? Buy the stuff close to home. And that's what we encourage everybody to do is, is buy local, eat local, shop local. And the asterisk there is, but don't be afraid to take advantage of the system as it currently exists. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing about where I come into this is that I'm not trying to produce all my own feed. I'm not trying to vertically integrate absolutely everything. I'm still buying industrial chicks because I want my customers to compare apples to apples. The same bird they would get in the grocery store is what I raise. Like I don't need to go into heritage breed poultry. Yeah, of course I have heritage breed sheep and probably cattle and, um, and my pigs are heritage breed, but you know, that's just a bonus because it's available here. The number one thing is for us to take steps towards regenerative, whether it's a conventional farmer who's listening to this, who is thinking I'm crazy because I started from scratch and did everything regenerative. Well, you know, it's just, it, it's a movement, you know, it's a journey, not a destination. And it's, it's, taking those steps towards this and then telling people about it and, and, and conversing about it, talking to old ranchers and farmers about this stuff, talking to new people that know nothing about the ag industry and, and just talking about it. Yeah, for sure. We got to start wrapping this up, man. For sure. I've definitely enjoyed it. And, you know, talking about it is my favorite thing. Like I mentioned, I'm doing a local radio show. It's called the tuning fork. Uh, and it's on our, uh, nonprofit university radio station, 7 p.m. Uh, 
Pacific Standard Time on chly.org. And then you can re-listen to old episodes on Mixcloud. And that's a great avenue for me to talk hyper-locally about all this stuff. Can and you then, send me uh, links to to uh, to Tuning Fork and a Mixed Cloud so I make sure I have the right stuff to put in the show notes? Will do, for sure. And and then the international platform that I speak on is Clubhouse, which is this new audio-only app. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it, but I am an Android guy, so I have been kind of left out from the whole Clubhouse thing. And I know, it's a, I know the app's available on Android now, but I've just kind of... I've let it pass me by and just try to focus on my podcast. But, but so what is, what is clubhouse clubhouse is like a live podcast. So you go into the platform and then there's the hallway where there's all these different rooms on different topics. And of course you can start a room. Um, and then there's clubs. So I'm part of the ag discussion group, which is a bunch of like industrial ag people from all over. Um, and we have really great conversations every single day there. And then uh, Farm to Table Talk, which is another podcast led by Roger Wasson. And he has a room at noon Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse in the Farm to Table Talk Club. And then the largest food club on the app is Food Growers United. And so it's mostly focused around things like backyard gardening and you know, microgreens and food trucks and, and, and urban farming. But there's so much interest from that community. And it's the biggest food club with over 18,000 followers. There's so much interest in what we do from urbanite people who want to talk to us. And so it's this live platform where there's people on stage and then there's the audience. And when you're in the audience, you can raise your hand to be brought up on stage. Um, and when you're, in the, uh, the, when you're on stage, you can invite people up to the stage and we can just have these really interesting conversations in kind of a live, casual, audio-based platform, which is wonderful for you and I when we're out in the pasture and we got our headphones in, but can't be looking at something, reading something or typing something. So it's just a great place to hang out when you're not listening to the Ranch and Reboot podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And, I and, when, and when I'm... Basically, when I can't find a room because there's no good farm rooms, when all the rooms are about the Kardashians and what, uh, what Elon Musk is up to, then I hop back into my podcasts. I, I don't know if I, I'm pretty, in, I'm pretty much an in, introvert. Like, I don't know if I could handle that much interaction while I'm trying to be out by myself with the cows, even if it's just, just a little bit of audio. So and schedules for things like that. Like I have a hard enough time sticking to a recording schedule. Like, oh, well, we got to go do this podcast thing. Like doing every, doing a clubhouse room every day at noon. You're probably not going to catch me doing that. So I hope nobody's getting their hopes up for that one. Hey, don't knock it till you try it. It's just <laughs> a place to hang out. And it's like, I got these relationships with cool people all over. Like, uh, you know, Roger recently invited, uh, interviewed Jennifer, who's putting, what is it? Ag World Conference on. Um, and you know, I heard her on the podcast. I was like, Oh, what's up? That's my friend, Jennifer from clubhouse. And I got friends all over, uh, that I talk to on a daily basis, but it's all casual. Just hop in when I hop in when I'm available and otherwise, you know, listen to a podcast or, or just listen to the cows and I might listen to my sheep chomp on some grass. I might have to, I might have to give that a look. So where else uh, can we find you on social media? Ben? Instagram and clubhouse are my two main spots. 
And so on Clubhouse, you just look up my name, Ben Glasson. And then on uh, Instagram, I'm at Glasson Farms. Uh, and then I'm, my abattoir business, which I have a landing page for at this point, it's called The Good Place Abattoir. Because when the child says, mom, where are we taking our birds? Well, honey, we're taking them to the good place. Or when one mom's talking to the other mom, hey, where'd you get, where are you getting that good meat from? Well, I get it from the good place. That's good. That's good. I like it. Good food comes from good places. And when our animals have a good life, they only have one bad day, but they're going to a good place to do it. I like that. So that was thegoodplace.ca? Uh, it's thegoodplaceabattoir.com. All right. I think I got that scribbled down. Did I forget to ask anything I should have? Um, I don't think so. I've sure had a lot of fun with this. And, you know, as I say, I'm still, you know, an old lady at the farmer's market. I told her, you know, I've just set a new goal that I need my red meat plant to be open by June of 2025. So that allows me to work backwards to start raising beef to, to process in that plant. She's like, oh, you know, you're, I just can't believe how far in advance you're planning. And I'm like, lady, that's only I'm trying years. to plan. Yeah, I'm like, you know, that's still the first couple chapters. I'm trying to build a 40-year farming career here. Like, <laughs> give me and, a break. And planning to slaughter something in 2025, that's like, that's a breeding decision right now. Sure is. You got to find your open cow and you got to figure out your bull and you got to put them together in just a couple of months in order to have that product in 2025. Yeah. So, you know, one influencer that I really like on the macro scale of marketing is Gary Vaynerchuk. And, you know, it takes a little bit to understand what his message is, but his biggest message is patience. It's being patience and being humble. Like he sounds like he's like this all bravado, uh, New Jersey, raw, raw kind of guy, but but his theory is work hard and fast as right now and but have patience for the long game so that's what agriculture is all about is we have the long game in mind we are planning in the far distant future but we are working our butts off as fast as possible today in order to reach that and we have to look at it from the long game we cannot take a short-sighted approach anymore to agriculture we cannot afford to take a short-sighted approach to agriculture anymore our soils cannot afford it our our health our human health can't afford to take a short-sighted approach to animal health to soil health and into human nutrition anymore we can't keep trading this short-term comfort this short-term pleasure and kicking a can down the road you know, sooner or later, there's there's a little pain, there's a little discomfort that we're going to have to endure. Absolutely, you know that reminds me, my on the radio show, my vegetable farming friend Jake Thorburn, he he said something along the lines of, you know, an old farmer would say, success in farming is having enough to farm again next year, and that seems so much like the old mentality that get big or get out has created where the best a farmer can do is hope that they can still be in business next year. Whereas reflecting on that statement that Jake made, I thought that his and my model of farming is so opposite of that. We are creating abundance 
for generations to come. And we are doing that with really high quality food and respecting the three pillars of, you know, the sustainability industry being, you know, social health in the fact that we're creating jobs, both for ourselves and for our community. We are creating health for our community. We are creating environmental health and we're creating an economic stable platform for us to live on. So, you know, I think that this regenerative movement and, and Brian, I really appreciate what you guys are doing by, by a modern twist on it. You know, everything from your punk rock beat intro to just the format of, of this long form podcast to just both you and Sikai are just, you know, personable, interesting people that just laid out and in a way that people can really get attached to and learn about this movement and participate with it. I think C carry carries the, the personality part of it a lot better than I do. Uh, but you know, I appreciate your compliments and you know, there are a lot of great podcasts out there podcast period, but you know, just regenerative podcast, there's some other great ones and I'll be honest and I'll, I'll admit, I don't listen to very many other ones anymore because I don't want to be derivative. I do look at what everybody else is doing for guest lists to make sure that, you know, that, that Clay Connery guy on the Working Cows podcast has sniped guests from me more than once that, you know, I've been about ready to send an email to and he releases an episode and I'm like, well, maybe I'll just put that one back to the back of the pile and come back in about six months. But, you know, Clay and I will have it out one day over that. Um, I'll probably not. He's kind of the pod father and I'll just, he gets to do whatever he wants, I think. Um, well, I mean, he led me to, to you, which was a good thing. And as he says, there's so much room for more grazing podcasts because everyone's going to take a different angle on it. And that's where, you know, he takes it from the family man and the preacher perspective. Whereas I feel like you and CK take it from a kind of new young modern way, you know, ranching reboot. Um, but then I just found, uh, what is it called? Grazing pastures, which is more of like, uh, ah, I don't know. I haven't even gotten into it, but it's such a different vibe. And my favorite podcast of all is probably the Pasture Pod, which is this like UK hilarious, just this insane man who goes off on pasture obsession. And it is my favorite. So check that one out if you haven't even just get an episode in. But no matter what way these podcasts go, I think there's so much room for guests to say different things on different podcasts and that's the fun of it is because i have like i cannot wait for another greg judy podcast to come out because there hasn't been one for a while so you know if you can get greg judy on i will be very happy take note to self email greg judy tonight to get on podcast and i'll probably forget to do that um, yeah and i'm gonna go on every single one of his videos for the last month and i'm gonna post get on this podcast <laughs> Hey, that, that, now you're talking, now you're talking. So you, you mentioned the intro music and I've been thinking about this for a long time. You know, I've, I've used that intro music now for 42 episodes plus a couple bonuses. And I haven't really given credit to where credit is due for, for that music. The intro music is courtesy of the Aaron Traffis band. Uh, my good friend, Aaron Traffis literally lives on the other side of the county. Um, he started to get into regenerative ag. He's had a band um, with several other gentlemen that I knew 
um, and they've been playing music together for over 20 years. So when I was starting up the podcast, I asked Aaron, is like, hey, could I use some of your music for an intro or outro? And he sent me some samples. One I liked, and he's like, well, go ahead, use that one. I wrote it, or Chris and I wrote it. You can use it. Great. And I've forgotten to give Aaron Travis and Chris Gehring credit for the music to Red Dirt Sun, which is the intro and the outro music. So I'll make sure I'll make sure that that uh, that gets like a little bit more prominent in the future. But yeah, so Red well, Dirt that's Sun. wonderful. It set it set the it set the mood. And for me, being you know, when I was a mountain biker, I was all black every day, tight jeans, a studded belt, and Vans shoes, and and going back to you know the metal and punk rock that I listened to then, that intro on a regenerative ranching podcast just oh man it hit my soul and it's like my generation of millennials that we need to get in this movement to be the farmers to fill the shoes of all those who are retiring and so that's what we need more of is getting young people interested in farming and i think that intro uh and your podcast is doing that well thanks for that i will uh i'll get my friend aaron and see if i can't i'll make sure i get the album name right and and i'll send you a link to that album i think you'd probably check i think you'd probably dig it perfect so probably gonna end right about here and we've been talking about red dirt sun and maybe in the background you can hear it going so enjoy it for another few seconds ben i really appreciate you joining me today it's uh it's been an awful lot of fun thanks brian can't wait to be back once i got some more updates and move this blueprint into the field That'd be great. I'm looking forward to it. We'll, uh, we'll have to sit down here in another few months and get an update from you. Well, gang, y'all have a great week. I'm Red Hills Rancher. Out.